So here is the old joke. You know, one of the things they taught us in homiletics class, that's just a fancy word for sermon class, is they said, listen, when you start your message, what you always want to do is begin with some sort of hook. In fact, here's sort of the pattern I was taught by one of my uh, preaching profs. He said, what you want to do is always start with a hook, take them to the book, that'd be the Bible, give them a good look, and tell them what they took. I said, that doesn't really work. He goes, I'm the teacher. You'll be graded on it. It is great. I said, it is poetry. So here's what I want to do. You know, they always say start with a hook. So here's the hook. There's the old joke. Many of you have heard it. Are you ready? How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Answer, practice, practice, practice. Now, some of you go, what does that even mean? All right, the idea is how do you get there direction-wise? How do you get there? And then someone says, no, it's practice. Okay, anyway. Hopefully, it can only go up from here. Here's the idea. To get better at anything, it requires practice. How many of you in here played a sport in high school or middle school or elementary school or you watched sports on TV? Anyone in here, have you ever gone out and exerted yourself? You will be very clear on this that if you wanted to get better at basketball or soccer or anything, um, my uncle, Lindsay's uncle, Daryl Mann, who worships here, he is uh, in great shape. He's very athletic. Uh, but he is really good at pretty much anything he tries. In fact, uh, I love but also hate to play him in backgammon because he's done it so much, I can never beat the guy. I get close, and I think it's only so he's toying with me. He's like, oh, that's a good little move you made right there, Josh. I wonder if you'll win. And then he tears me up. It's because he's practiced, practiced, practiced. If you want to get better at anything, we practice. Should it surprise us then that when it comes to prayer, although it is talking with God, we get better the more we practice it. Does this make sense? And, and we kind of get the clue. In fact, I want to take you just to a couple passages. I'm going to reference a ton, but we won't have time to go to them all this evening. But I want to take you to Luke chapter 11. We've looked at this before, and I just think it's so important. But Luke chapter 11 in verse 1, interestingly enough, this is one of the two places where Jesus gives uh, the model prayer. By the way, it, this has wrongly been called the Lord's Prayer, and I've certainly called it that. This is really more the model prayer, or what do you say? Here's sort of how to model your prayer. The actual Lord's Prayer is more arguably seen in John's Gospel, chapter 16 and, or, and 17 in particular, where Jesus himself is praying, and we listen in on the words of his prayer. But right here in... Matthew 6, and in Luke 11, Jesus gives his model prayer. But preceding the prayer in verse 1 of chapter 11 in Luke, you have the disciples coming up to Jesus, and they ask him this question. It says, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray. He, and they go on to say, hey, teach us just like John the baptizer, just as he taught his disciples to pray. Jesus, we, you are our rabbi, our teacher, our leader. Show us how to do what you do. By the way, that is the heartbeat of a true disciple. A disciple simply says what Jesus said and does what Jesus did. You want to know what it, that means to follow Christ? Do what Jesus did. And so they say, teach us how to do what you're doing. Now, here's the beautiful reality. 
Three things, and I'm going to get into some practical things for us tonight, but I want you to pay attention to this if you don't mind. There are three things that this little passage tells us. Their question and Jesus' response tells us a few things. Number one, it tells us that not one person in this room was born naturally knowing how best to pray. Now, many of us may be more comfortable than others, and that's great, but Jesus is going to say there is a way to pray that is supernatural, but it does not come naturally. And so here's the first thing. Don't feel bad if you don't feel comfortable praying. It does not come naturally because we, by sin, are not in relationship with God when we're born. We are saved, and then we begin the process of discipleship or becoming like Jesus, okay? Second thing, and I think this is really important, I love the fact that although it doesn't come naturally, do you, do you hear the hope in the question? It's not, oh no, we can't do this. Woe is us. It's, hey, we don't know how, but guess what? We can learn how, but we need a teacher. So first thing is, we don't do this naturally. Second thing, though, is that we can learn how to pray, but we need a teacher. So that's why we go to Jesus. He is our teacher. You want to know how to live life? Go to the one who authored it. Jesus is our teacher. And then the third thing is simply this. Um, and, and some of you will get this right away. You'll see this already. But the reality is, practice assumes failure. Right? If you were perfect at any sport, I mean perfect, I'm not talking just really good, I mean perfect, no errors, no missed shots, nothing, you would not need to practice. It is because that we fail that we practice, therefore practice assumes failure. This is good news. It means that when I don't get something right in my walk with God, even when it comes to talking with Him or understanding why and how and all that, it assumes, and Jesus Himself is assuming, hey Josh, it's okay, you're going to mess up. That's why we do this and practice. So it's like the coach said, practice doesn't make perfect. Perfect practice makes perfect, doing it the right way over and over and over again. So here's all I want to do tonight for our remaining 40 minutes or less. I want us to go through four practices. So if we were in a gym and if we were to try to identify what body parts, what muscle groups do we want to hit, we'd say, hey, we're going to do our shoulders or our chest or we're going to do our arms, or we're going to do our legs, or whatever it may be. Think of these four practices as exercising different parts of the prayer muscle groups. And as we do these, we're going to kind of hopefully unpack some ways that will help us as we practice to pray. All right? Sound good? This is overwhelming, your response. Thank you. I, I, I'm so ready to get into this. All right, here we go. Here's the first one. And, and again, I'm going to have to just do a lot of referencing. But first, let's go to Matthew chapter 6. I'm going to show you just a couple things in there, and uh, then we'll move on from there. Matthew chapter 6. This is the other passage in which Christ gives us a model prayer. But the first practice is simply this, and I don't know if you take notes or anything else. I'm going to jot some things down tonight, not nearly as much as some of you will want. And for others, you won't care, and that's okay. But the first practice, if we were to kind of just put these up here, is the practice of praise. The practice of of praise. If you want to pray better, learn how to praise better. 
Now, when we talk about praise, there's all sorts of ideas as to what praise means. In fact, sometimes we confuse a practice with praise. Here's what I mean. Sometimes we think that praise is what we do on Sunday morning when we are singing. We are praising God only when we're singing. True or false, church? False. Praise is not simply a particular action. It is an attitude, and it's also a posture of one's life. If you want to learn how to pray better, we learn how to praise better. This is what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9. We actually are going to get an example of praise. Verse 9, when he says, This then is how you should pray. Begin with, Our Father in heaven. What is that next word? Next word. Hallowed. Someone else, do you have a different word there than hallowed? What was that? Honored, yeah, that'd be another great word for it. What's another word you might think of for hallowed? Holy. So hallowed, holy, honored. This is a word of praise. You say, how is that a word of praise? Well, praise is honoring God for who he is. Begin with praise if you want to pray better. And by the way, praise is different than prayer, or praise is different than thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is, okay, so like for instance, my buddy Mark over here, if I came up to him and let's say we just had lunch and he paid for my lunch, which he has done. And so let's say I come up and I'm just like, thank you, thank you, thank you for the great meal. I'm giving Mark thanksgiving. But if instead I come up to him and say, Mark, you are just a champ of a guy. You are the paragon of human perfection. All men want to beat you. I mean, okay, now he'd go, boop, liar, but beyond that, Pinocchio, okay. But beyond that, there's a difference between thankfulness and praise. Do you see the difference? Thanks is here's what you have done. Praise is who you are. So let's just kind of do this. We're going we're gonna to have some interaction tonight. It'll be a lot more fun if you participate, so please do. So here's a practice for working on praise. Some of us have a hard time thinking of, well, who is God? Who is he? I mean, like, core, just who is God? This is one of the reasons that knowing your Bible is a really helpful to, tool for being able to pray better. But let's do this. Here's a really simple practice. The practice... And there's probably different names for it, but I like the name. Alphabet prayer. Any of you done this before? Any of you even know what that is? Let's just start with this. What is the alphabet? ABCs. It's easy, yes. Okay, and so ABCs, right? So here's what you do in a prayer, and this is a great practice for expanding your vocabulary of praise. Here's the way it works. You just go through the alphabet, A through Z, and at every letter, you use that letter to attribute something about who God is to him. So for example, we would say, A, God, you are almighty. B, what would be a B word? Someone help me out here. You are blessed. You, what, what's that? Bountiful. Bountiful. What's another one? That's great. You are the best. I, I love that. What's another B word? How, have you ever told God that he's beautiful? That sounds weird coming from a dude. I get that. And us, I mean, to say something to someone else, the only person I want to feel, you know, say beautiful to is my wife or my daughter. But 
the Bible calls the Lord beautiful, that he is brilliant. He is just this glorious God. Okay, so see, so he is almighty. He is the best. He's beautiful. He's bountiful. Okay, what about C? What would be a C word of who God is? Creator. Creator. What was this one? Compassionate. What was this one, Alex? Caring. Caring. Uh, What's another C word? Comforter. Do you you hear these things? And and you could say, well, yeah, but that's giving thanks because he's comforter. No, 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 no. He comforts, and you can thank him for comforting you. But you are saying this is who you are in your core, in your nature. You are one who comforts. Isn't that great? Because if that's who God is, he's not going to change when it comes to meeting your need. What about D? Let's just do a couple more here, okay? Letter. What's that? Okay, deliverer. Okay, good. What's another one? Defender. Defender. Oh, man, that's, that's so good. I love that. What, what, what's another one? Dependable. Hey, in this world, do you need someone who's dependable? Come on. All right. What about E? Excellent. Everlasting. What else? Exalted. Wow, we are going old King James over here. I love it. All right. He is exalted, just meaning that he's lifted up high, right? He's above all things. Okay, so can you see how as you go through this, by virtue of the letter, you start to think deeper and bigger as to who God is, and you begin to talk to him about how great he is. One thing we're going to get into this Sunday, I won't say much because I want you to come back, is that the Lord's Prayer is divided into two halves. First half is all about God. Before we talk about us, we talk about him, because when you know who he is and see him for how big he is, then no matter how big your problem that you present to him, it is itty bitty compared to the big God that you've just talked to. It gives you a better perspective. So first thing, if you want to pray better, just learn to have a better vocabulary of praise. Now, here's the second one, and my my, um, my spelling is not great, so forgive me if I get this one wrong, but the word I'm going to attempt to spell for you now is relinquish or relinquishment. Relinquishment. Any spelling teachers in the house? Is that right? Are we sort of right? Relinquish. Okay, we'll go with it, okay? All that means it's a prayer of letting go or saying, I'm not the boss. That's all it means. I'm not the boss. Everyone say that with me. I'm not the boss. If I did that in the youth group, I would have had a smart out going, you're not the boss. But the point is for us to acknowledge that we are not king. We are not Lord. We are not our own saviors. We are not God. We relinquish the little idol in our lives that says, you're the best, to say, no, I am a beautiful created being. He is the best. So here's what a prayer of relinquishment looks like. It's actually found also in the Lord's Prayer. Notice the next verse. Verse 10 says, Your kingdom come. Your will be done. Whose kingdom come, church? Whose will be done, church? Now here's the reality. I don't really like praying that and mean it. I want to say, my will be done. 
My kingdom come. You say, Josh, you don't have a kingdom. Oh, yes, I do. I absolutely have a kingdom. It is my body. Did you know my body is my kingdom? At least I treat it that way because I, I tell it to do what I want it to do, where to go, where I want to go, what to eat, what to think, what to wear. I have a kingdom. It's my car. It, it lets me go places. My kingdom is my income. My kingdom is my little house. My kingdom are my relationships. And every one of those things you say to God, no, it's not mine. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. And then notice what he says. It's not just, hey, it'd be great if this happened somewhere, sometime, somehow. But notice the specificity. That word, that word, specificity. Thank you. I'm learning how to speak this evening as well. Notice this, he says, your kingdom come and will be done. Where? On earth. As it is where? In heaven. Now, understand this. And this is one of the things a lot of times Christians get mucked up on. They kind of get confused. They think, well, uh, isn't God sovereign? Meaning, isn't he above all things, in control of all things, over all things? And the short answer is, well, yeah, of course he's God. But to say that he is overall or in charge of all, does not mean that he chooses to control everything that happens. Mamas, daddies, are you in charge at your house? Say yes. Okay. You have the right to dictate to your children what happens, and should they not abide by it, kaboom, drop the hammer. You are the king in your house, the queen in your house, But just because you have the authority over your children does not mean that you dictate everything your children do. And there are days that those little heathens do things you don't want them to do. Amen? Now, here's the deal. When we pray, Father in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, will be done on earth as it is in heaven. You're saying in heaven your will is perfectly done on earth, not always. But we want to see that change. You say, well... If God won't do that automatically, why should we pray that he'll do that? Here's the reality. God tends to work by persuasion instead of power. He does not come to us, slap a leash around our neck, and force us to love him. By the way, if someone is forced to love someone, is it really love? God is in the purpose and the practice and the behavior of calling people to love him through persuasion. And so he works in the ways that draw people slowly and painfully, but he does so because he loves creation. He's not trying to break creation. Now, there will come a day if we say no too long, and when he returns, that he will say, this is how it is. But he is giving us time. So we pray Your kingdom, your will, not mine, earth, everything just like in heaven. So how do we practice this? Very simply, let me give you an example here. Consider, and this is a question. Now, the first one is something where you start doing words. God is awesome. God is beautiful. God is courageous. All those things. But this one is the practice of asking a question. Asking a question. And here is the question. Ask... What does heaven on earth look like? That's the question. 
What does heaven on earth look like? Now, to answer this question, you need two things. Number one, you need a Bible. Too many people attempt to create heaven on earth out of their own experiences and desires, and look what we have to show for it today, family. We need the Word of God to show us what it really looks like for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. By the way, Martin Luther, the great reformer, made this great statement. I think it's awesome. He says, he that has prayed well has studied well. Because they know the Word of God. They know the heart of God. They've seen it. They've read it. They understand what is it that God wants here. So the first thing you need is your Bible. You need to be in the Word of God. By the way, I'm just really geeked out about this. February 3rd in just about, what is that, two and a half weeks, something like that from now? We're going to begin a series through the Gospel of Mark. I already have the first of our Mark journals. We're going to have three different volumes, and we're going to kind of break it up throughout the year, but it's going to be great. And here's the reason. We want you not only to know about Jesus, we want you to meet him in the text. So you need to know the scriptures. Second thing you need, though, if you're going to answer this question well, is the thing that most of us have lost from childhood. I'll give you a hint. I came into the house the other day. My daughter, Emma, who is just a little spark plug of a human being. Her hair is crazy to match her personality. She is a nut, but she is fun. And so the other day I come into the house, I've shared some of these kind of stories, forgive me. These are, look, I'm a young dad. These are the only illustrations I have to pull from. I'll get better material as they get older, okay? But here's the reality. I come into the house and Emma comes running up. She's dressed as a princess, well, three or four. She's got mixed match princess outfits. She goes, Dad, you gotta come quick. I said, baby, what's wrong? She goes, quick, up to my room. You gotta come now. I'm thinking, what happened? I run upstairs, and she gets up there, and she has dangled over her bed this stuffed animal and is on a string dangling, and she goes, it's about to fall into the giant pit. Help him. (laughs) Okay. So what do you do as a good dad in that moment? Lindsay, Emma needs you. No, no, no. I start playing with her. I get down, I'm like, oh no, what happened? Well, the great dragon came along. And so we start talking and we imagine this scene that is playing out in her mind. My son, Stephen, calls those moments living in Emma world. She's got her own language for it. She's got her own definitions for things. But she has an awesome imagination. If you want to answer the question, what does heaven on earth look like? You have got to regain and engage your God-given imagination. Do you know why God gave you an imagination? Real simple. He gave you an imagination so that you could imagine what the future will look like. Because here's what happens. When you hold the Bible in one hand and engage your imagination, what ends up happening is you begin to read, well, man, uh, what, what a husband and wife look like is that the husband loves his wife as Jesus loves the church. He will do anything, give up anything, so that his bride is, as Paul puts it, washed clean with the word. She is without wrinkle or blemish. She is made holy and looks beautiful just as Jesus Christ loves me and is making me holy. And so now I begin to imagine what would it look like for a husband to love his wife the way that is defined in the Bible. 
Oh God, would you please, would you please, would you please bring that picture to this earth? And then you begin to make it personal. God, as a husband, forgive me when I want to be the king instead of the humble servant in my home. Help me to find creative ways to wash my wife in the word. Let me know your word and to present it in a way that is attractive and engaging. And then we begin to read things like, well, here's what it looks like for parents and children. And so you begin to read how children are to honor their mothers and their, par- their fathers. And parents are not to make their children um, exasperated or feel beaten down. And then we begin to read about how we should work in our jobs and how as bosses we ought to work and how we ought to interact with the government and how the government ought to interact with us. And we begin to see God's will for justice for all and peace for all. And we begin to read these things and begin to imagine what it could look like and we begin to confess where we failed and ask him to intercede on our behalf in our lives. Does this make any sense at all? So if you want to live and read and understand and get into the prayer as Christ has given us. A second prayer practice is simply the prayer and practice of relinquishment. What does heaven on earth look like? Okay, God, I'm going to use my holy imagination to see what heaven on earth looks like so I can live the future today. All right? You guys still with me tonight? Is that, are we good? Well, okay, in case you're not, we're going to move on to the third one. And in this case, I'm going to get you guys uh, to help me out here. Now, this last, or this third one, we may have time for all four. I don't know. We'll see. Third one, though, um, well, this is the calisthenics of prayer. Are you ready for the calisthenics of prayer? Someone tell me, what are calisthenics? Exercises. Are you ready? Now, this is where we go from being creative with our words, creative with our imagination, To our physical posture. What is a posture? Yeah, what's a posture? Some, okay, wait, let me back up here. How many of you remember your mother or grandmother telling you, sit up straight, put your shoulders back? It was never the dads that I recall. It was always grandmother, and usually in church when I'd be kind of, and she, then that little hand would come around. How many of you got the thump growing up from the grandmother or someone? You had nice grandmas? Okay. No, no, you did? So you learned it from her. I, I tell you what, it was a little sonic boom. She could go, and so no, I'm sitting up. All right, so a posture is the way your body is positioned. Did you know that your posture impacts how you feel, think, and even how you behave? There have been numerous studies that talk about this. This is why if you want people to perform better, get them in a posture that gets more blood flowing so they sit straight up, feet on the ground. Um, and, and in fact, I mean, you can tell. I'm going to describe for you a common posture. And you tell me what age group this posture belongs to. Are you ready? Here we go. Just so this doesn't break. Here we go. <sighs> Seventh grade. Am I listening to a teacher over here? All right. And when you see that posture, is that student engaged in rigorous mental work? No. They're thinking, how many ways can I entertain myself before I die of boredom? Your posture, even in prayer, is a way to engage your prayer life in a deeper way. 
Because your posture, and I want to be real careful here, your posture does not change God's response. Your posture affects your heart's posture so that you're ready to pray. And you guys know, even without me going through the litany of verses we're about to tackle here in the examples, you know already that certain postures represent different heart postures as well, don't you? So let's just kind of go through some of these. And we won't go through them all, time's too short, but let me give you a few. The first one is the one we're all doing right now. What is the posture you're doing right now? Sitting. By the way, that's a biblical posture. You say, well, really? Is it in the Bible? Yes, it is. By the way, really, any posture can be biblical in the sense that if you are doing it to position your heart before the Lord, it's okay. But sitting, so in, well, David sat before the Lord. First Chronicles 17, we won't turn there, but in First Chronicles 17, David, after he is told, this is what's going to happen, you're going to be king, all these great things, he sits before the Lord and he lays out this most beautiful prayer to God. But here's the interesting thing. It is a long prayer. So if you're sitting, this is a great posture for a lengthy conversation with your father. You're comfortable. You're aware. But you understand it is a conversation that you're having. This is a, well, it's sort of like sitting across the table with someone with a cup of coffee. Here's what's on my heart. Here's what's happening. This is the most common posture because it's the most comfortable one for time just in conversation. Uh, let, let's do a couple more here, and I'm going to get your help on these, okay? Here's the second posture. Are you guys ready? Everyone do this with me. The second one is not sitting, but it is standing. Go ahead. Let's just stand up here. We're going to practice this. You said, wait, you're really, oh, yeah. All right. By the way, for those who are listening to this, everyone almost is standing. Okay, so here we go. And if you can't stand or something, please don't feel like you have to <laughs> now that you are. So here's standing. Standing, <laughs> oh, this is way too much fun. The next posture is the hokey pokey posture. You put your right foot in, you put your, no, we won't do that. Standing posture is simply this. It is a posture of readiness, and it's one often associated with the idea that we are in a battle and we are ready for what comes. Ephesians chapter 6 tells us that we are engaged in a battle, not against flesh and blood, but against the principalities, rulers, and all that is arrayed against us in the spiritual realm. So you get ready. You put on those boots. You put on that belt, that breastplate. You get ready because this is the battle that you are engaged. You say, I didn't sign up for a battle. Yeah, you did. You said, I'm on Jesus' team, and the enemy said, fine, I'm now against you. Standing is one of the ways that you posture yourself to say, I am ready. Now, there's another posture within this. Now, you, some of you are going to go, I will never come back to church after tonight. Lo siento mucho. Okay, so here we go. Here's the next one. It's not just standing, but, but we got these appendages called hands and arms. Have you ever seen someone put their hands up in church? And, and look, I, first time I saw that in a church of Christ, I thought the person was asking a question. We don't raise our hands in the church. I mean, it's like, is anyone happy to be here? Mm-hmm, very much so. Don't make me raise my hand. But what does this look like to you when you see someone with their hands up like this? Praise. Surrender. Now, see, isn't it interesting that the same posture can lead to two different ways of expressing your heart to God? I'm not going to make you raise your hands. You can, in fact, go ahead and sit down. Some of you are going, thank you, thank you, okay? 
But sitting, it's a conversation. Standing, it is, I am ready for what is coming. Standing with one's hands raised is another posture. And it's a practice to be able to say to God, by the way, you say, how's that praise? All right, quick question. How many of you have ever been to a concert or seen a concert on TV? What do they do in the concert? Raise your hand. Well, okay, depends on the concert. Let me back up here. You're at the symphony listening to Beethoven's Fifth or something like, oh, yes, oh, yes. Maybe not, okay? But it is a symbolic and universal sign of wow. You, You don't believe me? How many of you have watched an intense sports game? What happens when your team makes a touchdown? Yes, we did it. Now, here's the reality. Isn't it curious that we are comfortable raising our hands when an 18-year-old boy walks across a line carrying a rubber, air-inflated ball, but we have trouble raising our hands to Jesus in praise? I'm not throwing stones. This is uncomfortable for me as well. I'm trying to work past this. But do you know how you get better at something? Practice, practice, practice. If you have a hard time raising your hands to Jesus, don't do it in here. Go home. Find a dark closet. Get the temperature just right. And then with no one looking, just kind of go, okay, practice. It'll become easier the more you do it. But the other thing is, and I love what you said here, it's not just that you're praising God. There's also something else. And, and people get into all the minutiae. Well, if you do it this way, it means this, this. And I was like, look, it's not a touchdown, dude. Just whatever you want to do is great. But the reality is, have you ever seen someone do this? It, Where have you seen people doing this when it's not in praise or in worship? What's that, cop shows? (laughs) Oh, you've just reverted back to every bad stereotype of God. Don't shoot! No! (laughs) Okay, fair enough, fair enough. Let me direct your mind to what I was thinking. How many of you have ever, and I'm going back to the kids here, but how many of you either remember as a child or have seen a child run up to their mom or their dad or grandmother and they've got their hands up like this? What are they saying? Pick me up. Hold me. Have you ever seen a child skin their knee? They run crying tears. They go over to their parent. They don't run over and go like... (laughs) The hands are almost always... could you just hold me when you pray to God and you need to know he's near what if we reverted back to our spiritual child and say hold me what is it Jesus says unless you become like little this is a posture of prayer let me give you just a couple more here we won't have time for the last thing probably we'll see there are a few others here. You have bowing. And, and when we think of bowing, we only think usually of our head, right? It's like, bow our head in prayer. And that's a great thing to do. It's a symbol of reverence, of respect. But the biblical picture of bowing is not this, but it's, it's this. By the way, where would you see that? Let's, uh, let's say you've watched a period piece. Maybe it's 
the old medieval something or other, and you see someone bowing that way, where might that individual be bowing that way before a king? What's what's that? Submitting. Submitting, absolutely. When you are in that position, are you in a vulnerable position? Oh, yeah. You're saying, I'm beneath you, I'm below you, and you have power over me. It is a way of saying, you are sovereign, I am not. And in a world full of little gods and little goddesses called human beings, we need to be reminded that we are not in charge, He is. And one of the best ways to position yourself for prayer is to position your body in a kneeling position or a bowing position. Moses did this in worship as well. It's also a picture of worship. Moses does this in Exodus 34. And then Ezra does this uh, as well in Ezra chapter, excuse me, Nehemiah chapter 8 and verse 6. Let me give you another one here. It's not just kneeling and I'm, well, nuts. I have no dignity around here anyway, so let's just kind of do this. The other one is, and you got to say this word carefully, church, because it's been said wrong and it just gets a lot of people tickled, but prostrate. Okay, key phrase, prostrate. But what is that? Yeah, face on the ground, right? right? Hey, by the way, I'm being silly here, but I want you to know this is a safe place. If your short, hairy-faced preacher can do this, we can be a family, okay? I want you to know that it's safe to be in church, okay? But to lay prostrate before the Lord, what do you think that might symbolize? Either you're incredibly sleepy or... I got nothing. I got nothing. I've been diagnosed with cancer. I got nothing, God. My wife's about to leave me. I got nothing. My job, I'm too old to get a new job. I got nothing. If you go back to the biblical characters who were prostrate before the Lord, they went before the Lord in those moments where they said, I have nothing. The army is coming against me. The nation is about to fall. My enemies surround me. God, help. I have nothing. In the same way that when you lay flat at night to sleep because you have no energy, you lay flat before the Lord because you say, I have nothing in me that can fix what I'm going through. It is a picture of sorrow and begging for help. And it's this beautiful moment where you get to say, I have nothing. What is that phrase? We come into this world with nothing and we leave with nothing. God, all I have is yours in the breath I breathe in but one moment is a gift from you. Help me now. There are many examples of this. Let me give you three. Joshua, in Joshua chapter 7, he lies prostrate before the Lord in sorrow. You have Ezra again in Ezra chapter 10. He's laying prostrate before the Lord in sorrow. You have even the one that we're talking about tonight, Jesus. Did you notice that in, well, if we go to Matthew 26, Jesus, the night before he dies, where does he go to be with the Lord? Do you remember? goes up to this hill called the Mount of Olives. And inside the Mount of Olives was a garden, a specific area called the Garden of Gethsemane. By the way, do you know what the the word Gethsemane means? It means olive press. 
It's curious that the night before Christ was to be pressed, to be poured out, to be squeezed for all that he was worth, he went into a place called the Olive Press. And it is there that we are told that with such great anguish he sweat drops of blood. And we're told both in Matthew's account and Luke's, or excuse me, in Mark's account that he bowed down. It was the image of a prostrate Christ. Often we think of Jesus sitting, usually maybe on a rock or leaning against a rock and Again, in all of our pictures of Jesus, I think we miss something because we show him as a white guy wearing a beautiful robe, and he's got a feather-permed hairstyle. He looks like he just came out of a glamour shots, and it misses the dirt and the sweat and the blood of God in flesh for us. Even Christ himself, prostrate. It's a picture of, I need help. I'll give you... Just one more here. Let's go to Luke chapter 18. I want to give you this one, and we're going to call it the night here. don't have time for the fourth one. But Luke chapter 18 is one of these really cool moments. Jesus, in a series of consistent parables, he's kind of giving a picture to people about prayer. And as he's doing so, he's trying to give them reasons why they should pray and how they should pray. Again, Jesus constantly took moments to teach people how to pray. Why? Because we don't naturally know how to pray. But we can learn by going to our teacher. And we should not become discouraged when we pray, as Christ tells us in the first story that we don't have time to read right now. But in this first one, he talks about a persistent widow. Why? Because there are going to be times where we feel like God doesn't listen. Uh, by the way, next, next Wednesday night, I can't do it on a Sunday because it's going to take too long. But next Wednesday night, I'm going to walk through reasons why prayers are seemingly unanswered. And so if you've ever struggled with saying, I, I just, I mean, I, I pray, but it seems like nothing happens, uh, I'd encourage you to be here. And if you know someone who might be blessed by that, next Wednesday night we'll record it, uh, but I need a full hour to kind of walk through all the stuff, and Sunday most people aren't going to stick around for an hour-long sermon, okay? But here's the second thing. In the next story, right after the persistent widow, Jesus tells another parable. And so two people, a Pharisee and a tax collector, and I want you to see something here, that the posture does not actually dictate the heart of a person but it can reveal the heart of a person. So in this passage, Jesus is talking about prayer, and he says, to some who were confident of their own, what's that next word? Of their own righteousness. Anyone you know who's confident in what they've done, who they are? There's one guy that I see every morning when I look in the mirror who struggles with that one. And so he says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, a good churchgoer, the kind of guy everyone wanted to be. And the other was a no good tax collector. The Pharisee, notice this, stood up and prayed about, what's that word? himself. Look at me, look at me, look at me, I'm good. Almost as though he's coming alongside God, leaning up against God saying, <laughs> aren't you glad that I'm on your team? I'm a pretty good looking dude. I'm awesome. See all the things I've done. He talked and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. <laughs> I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. Remember we said last week, that prayer, tithing, and fasting were the three spiritual practices primarily practice. And so what does Jesus say? Well, those three things. But then notice he says this, but 
the tax collector, hear this now, stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Do you notice a different posture even there? They're both standing. See, here's the reality. We'll stop with these three. Your posture can help your heart. It can also reveal your heart. One man stands there looking up saying, hey, look at me, look at me. And another man says, what have I done with my life? Oh, just have mercy. And here's the cool thing. Here's why I think this is such an encouraging passage. He then says this, and I just love this phrase, what Jesus ends with. He says, I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He's basically saying this. Prayer, as you practice it, and if you practice it perfectly, will draw you closer to God. These are some of the ways that you can do it. And so here's what I'm going to invite you all to do. Sometime over the next seven days, between now and when we get together again next Wednesday, would you practice one or more of these? Do it in the privacy of your own home. Do it in your car. Well, okay, don't do this in your car, please. But do it in the privacy of your home. Do it with a friend. Do it wherever you feel comfortable. But would you begin to express yourself and practice some different muscle groups of praise? Because as you do, I believe we as a body will become not only more comfortable in praying, but we will begin to find ourselves longing to be closer to our Father. So then we pray. Our Father who's in heaven, holy is your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth and in my life as it is in heaven. So that's some postures and practices. I hope they're helpful. I love you guys. God bless you. I will see you Sunday.